everybody. Welcome to my podcast, Changing the Course. I'm Atara, founder of the Curly Girl Movement, author of the Curly Girly book series, and owner of curlygirly.com, empowering girls to understand the legacy of their hair. With me today as my guest co-host is my good friend, Grace Cross. Hi, Grace. How are you doing today? Hey, Atara. Hey, audience. I'm doing great. How are you? Doing good. Thank you for asking. Well, I'm Grace Cross. I'm the owner of The Baby Spot, the world's only global parenting magazine, and you could find me at thebabyspot.ca. Now, Atara and audience, we have such a special guest. I'm very excited about Atara. Who do we have? We do have a special guest. Today, it is my pleasure to be speaking with Dr. Angela Sadler-Williamson, who is a filmmaker, an educator, and most recently, the author of a children's book, My Life with Rosie which details the real story behind the Rosa Parks we think we all know. A former producer for the Orange County News Channel, Angela has over 25 years of experience in the broadcast television world, as well as the higher education industry. A multiple Tele Awards recipient, Angela also has a doctorate in human services. In December 2018, she released her award-winning documentary about her cousin, Rosa Parks, which can be viewed on Amazon Prime. Her best-selling children's book, My Life with Rosie, A Bomb Between Cousins, was just released a few weeks ago in honor of Juneteenth. Welcome, Angela. I am so happy to have you on the show today. How are you doing? Great. How are you? We are doing well. So I really, I want to start by talking about Rosa Parks today because Rosa is such an iconic figure in the civil rights movement. Um, and just to refresh everybody's memory, on December 1st, 1955, Rosa Parks was arrested, right, for refusing a bus driver's instructions to give up her seat to a white passenger. Um, such an amazing um, story that this is. And I understand Rosa was a cousin of yours and that you actually know this story more intimately than most. So can you tell us um, what you know really from the inside, from being related to Rosa and what your family um, history is on this? You know, it's so it's so interesting. I think I am really unique because I actually have two sides of how I understand Rosa Parks. I have the side that you just said. I'm growing up learning about her in the history books. But um, on April 18th, 1998 is when I actually first meet Rosa Parks. And how I meet her is at a bridal family shower, which is for me because I am marrying her first cousin. And so when I first started dating my husband, of course, the family always told me, they said, oh, yes, you know, they kept saying this cousin Rosie, cousin Rosie. I'm like, oh, who's cousin Rosie? <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you, you, don't, you understand this. And then so all of a sudden, they're like, oh, oh, it's, oh, it's Rosa Parks. I'm like, you mean Rosa, Rosa Parks? Parks. <laughs> <laughs> so to me, it never dawn on me even though they said it and and they were being sincere when they said it but it never dawned on me that this woman would actually come to a bridal family shower for me and so she did and on april 18th when she came and at this point um she's well into her late like late 70s early 80s at, at, at right. the right okay yes, but yes. of like complete sound mind Yes, yes. Um, she's never been a person who's very talkative. So everyone is a little shocked about that because here's this woman who is this great iconic figure and she's, she's very 
um, like soft spoken, but she's very firm in her beliefs. And so at this point, she still is soft spoken, but she she hands me my bridal shower gift, and I'm like, oh my goodness! I'm what was it? Tell us what it was. Do you remember? This, yes, yes. In fact, I have it too. I have it today. It was a book from her. It was one of the last books she published. It's called A Quiet Strength. You can get it on Amazon. But inside, you can't get this, and I will never give it away. Inside, she writes, "Welcome to the family." Oh, and and then of course she signs Rosa Parks, and I'm thinking, oh my goodness. Somebody I actually learned about in history is now becoming my cousin, but because the the Williams inside, this was just like a, any other cousin, I just sort of took on that persona as well as like, this is not Rosa Parks, this is cousin Rosie. So at this, it transitions. And so, and, and a lot of people ask me this too, because when I met Rosa Parks, I, I was working at the Orange County, so news channel so I was definitely into production that was what I went to college for but I didn't really start to document and get the documentary together about uh, the Williamson side of the family until 2015 and and that was actually um, a turning point for a, a, all of us in the family because my father-in-law passed away who at this time is the patriarch of the family so when he passed away all the sisters came over to my house because of my husband being the trustee and and in in charge everybody this just became the headquarters and i started listening to all all of these stories and i thought oh my goodness these stories are stories i never heard and i know if I didn't hear them. Everybody else hasn't heard them. The only reason you would is because you're part of the family. And then, so what I started to do is um, it was just, it was a time in, in my life and you probably understand this yourselves, a time in, in my life where it just like everything just hit. Um, and I was, I was done with schooling. Um, I actually was, I did not have a job. I had left a job um, as an adjunct professor because it was really part-time work, had started a full-time job, just just walked away from it after three months. We'll just skip that part. And then so and then at, and then at the same time, I lose my father-in-law. So it was almost like, you know, it's like everything that could just happen to me happened to me at that point. And I think it it happened at a point so that I could really start to listen. And when I started to listen, I thought to myself, Oh my goodness, I have I have a research project here. And that's how I looked at it because I was looking at this from a research standard, a, a research background, because I just finished my dissertation and I was thinking, okay, these are great subjects. This is uh, I see a great, I mean, like thesis question here, you know, you know, like for example, you know, who is the real Rosa Parks? Right. Like Who's that. the woman behind her? You know, I just want to interject for one second. You said something really interesting, and Grace um is yes. with me. We're friends long enough. She'll she'll remember that I said <laughs> this before. Um, so you said that, you know, Rosa Parks was this quiet woman, not so talkative, not so um boisterous. And it's interesting because when I read, um, I think I even in the Who Is books, you know, those Who Is books that you read to children, yes. um, we read it like that's exactly how she's described. And what struck me again when I read um, a biography about her is also that she is described over and over again 
as a quiet woman, that even though she did take a stand in a time where other people were not, and it was not an easy um, position to be taking and to refuse, you know, to go to the back of the bus was not something anyone else was doing. She wasn't this leader in the traditional sense of that word, that she was a very quiet person. And I find that so striking because, um, you know, I love the book. Um, here's where I've said this before um, by Susan Cain, a quiet, the power of introverts in a world that can't stop talking. Um, I love that because I think that a lot of leaders, you know, we often mistake leaders for like very loud, boisterous people who are always taking a stand on something and a position on something else. But often actually leaders and change makers have what we call quiet strength. And everything I've read about Rosa Parks says that that's who she was, somebody who actually shied away from the limelight. So I'm curious, just knowing her in person, is that the person that you saw as well? Yes, it is. And I, I think a lot of times too, because exactly what you said, um, because when we think of leaders, we, we think of that extrovert, the person who is the loudest, who can get their point across quicker and things like that. And so when I met her, and then of course she gives me her book is titled A Quiet Strength. I mean, she, she pretty much, she, she understood who she was, but I also think too, uh, and, and you also mentioned this as well, is that one of the things that I sought out when I started um, producing and writing this documentary was that I, I realized that she was probably one of the most misunderstood, um, you know, silent leaders of the civil rights movement because she was, she didn't have those personality traits. They, they weren't, they weren't part of who she was, but it did not diminish um, the strength that she had behind everything that she did, which was in it, which if you think about everything she did was intentional. And so a lot of times when people um, learn about her, they learn about her because people see that characteristic and they see how quiet she was and, and that she, it, she really wasn't speaking unless spoken to a lot of people misunderstand who she really was. I mean, to a point of where I've seen things as recent as last year, and it was a product description of her who pretty much put her as an ordinary seamstress until an extraordinary day. And, and at that point I realized, and, and I don't blame the, the manufacturer because it's what everybody's been taught, but that's not who she was. So you're saying she actually had, because you're very right that, you know, a lot of what you read says, you know, she was just tired that day. She didn't want to go to the back of the bus and, and that's where it stems from. But I think that's actually um, when you delve into it more deeply and it sounds like you're saying the same thing, that it's not actually true at all, that she actually had a forethought in her position and she planned to say today, I'm not going to the back of the bus. Is that right? Um, almost. Okay. So let's, let's <laughs> clarify. Let's yeah. And see, and this is stuff that people, everyone get, doesn't understand until they're told, especially me. Um, okay. So first of all, no one is really ever told that Rosa Parks was sitting in the black section. 
Okay. Right. No. Oh, that's very interesting, <laughs> yeah. Angela. That's like a small tidbit that's been that's left a out. Big thing. <laughs> Angela. Grace is like, whoa. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm just so thankful for you because when we read history, we want to read it correctly. Right. Well, you know? it, but, but you're reading what you're, you're given. And you know what? Our history books, they are abbreviated. But, but yes. And so not only was she sitting in the black section but when the rule was even if there was an extra seat next to you and a white person needed to sit down everybody had to get off that seat so 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 here so i'm going to take you back and i'm going to rewrite your history books so you are you're walking on the bus and Rosa Parks is in, now she is in the black section, but she's the first, it's the first seat of the black section. So it's closer. She's sitting in the black section and she's sitting next to another gentleman. And um, the, so when the white person enters, uh, the, the gentleman sitting next to her, you know, knows the rules. So he gets up because they're the, even though they're in the black section, that they're the closest to the white. So he gets up to give up its seat. And so technically now, if this was 2020 and we were all in public transit, one person gets up, the other person sits down, but that's not what the rules were in 1955 in segregation in Alabama. So Rosa Parks had to get up. And so when Rosa Parks doesn't get up, this, this white man can't sit down because she's still sitting. She's still occupying. The, uh, so this little woman who, <laughs> you know, is, is blocking the entire, the entire section because she won't give up. Give up. Now here's another part of the backstory. The bus driver and Rosa Parks had already had um, a meeting of the minds, let's just say, because there was an incident where she went to pay her money and you had to pay your money in the front and then go to the back and enter and that had happened. And if the bus, if the bus doesn't close, that, I mean, if the bus closes, then you've already paid. Well, then you're out of luck. And so they had already had work. Like an before. altercation. Okay. Yes. And so there's already, there's already, you already have created the perfect storm, so to speak. You know, they've there's already. There's bad had, blood between them yeah, already. They've, they've already okay. had bad blood. Um, Rosa Parks isn't, and a lot of people say she's just tired. No. Um, what she is tired of is that she's one of the people that went to the Emmett Till funeral who saw this little boy, you know, in this casket after he was lynched. Um, she, she's already working on other cases because there were other people who had been arrested too, other women. And so she's already working with the NAACP. She, so, so really she's, she's just tired of everything. So it's just the perfect storm of everything happening to this one day. And so that's why when I see things like she was an ordinary woman, and I'm not even going to talk about the seamstress part yet, but when they say she's an, she was an ordinary woman, she really wasn't because she was already working behind the scenes and getting, she's the one that actually started the NAACP Youth Council. I mean, so she's already doing stuff. So the things that we see in our history books is because we have to see it because really um, the story of Rosa Parks is used to tell a bigger story. And so when there is time given 
to the civil rights movement, a lot of times is given to that bigger story. It's just this one event happens and then all of a sudden we have the birth of the civil rights movement, even though there really wasn't, it, it was just, it was quietly done. And we all know this, where you continually work at something and you work at something and you work at something and then all of a sudden it gets bigger than you. Well, everybody else just sees the bigger than you. They don't see what you were doing behind the scenes. Right. So, it, it just reminds me of like, you know, when somebody's starting a business, right? We can, all three of us relate to this, I'm sure. <laughs> right? And you know, you're toiling at it five years, six years, and then suddenly you hit it exactly like you said. And everyone's like, wow, overnight success. Yeah. You're so lucky. <laughs> right. Right? Right? There's no you. overnight success. And there's, and you know, I always like to say this change happens um, slowly, but then suddenly. So I think yeah. there's a melding of, of what you're saying is that it did, this was the outgrowth of a lot of other things that what happened with Rosa Parks that day on the bus. It was a culmination of other things that she had been working on. So the change was slow, but then it was sudden because yes. that particular moment propelled things in a way that no other moment till that point had. Would you say that's accurate? Yes, exactly. Exactly. And I think from that point, on um, what we see of Rosa Parks is um, she does become in the early parts of the movement, she does become the face behind it because she was a lot of people in that community already, they already knew who she was and because she had been getting people together, she had been working on different projects. And so she had already had the respect of the community, but then a lot of times too, people don't, um, they don't really understand, well, how did we get a Rosa Parks? Well, we get a Rosa Parks. Yes, it comes, it comes down from my husband's family and the, and the great, great grandfather, I think that is for, for my husband, but, and it's her grandfather, but then also too, she also had a strong support system and her husband, Raymond Parks, who in the early days, of the Scottsboro boys, he was pulling her in and things like that. So for her, all of a sudden, she is now this person who is pushed into the limelight. She, she wasn't, she didn't start that way. She, she started that way, doing a lot of stuff behind the scenes. And so a lot of people, when they learn about Rosa Parks, they just learn about that one incident. And then, you know, 12 months later, you know, segregation is banned, that is illegal. And then, and then it's just sort of, she just sort of slips away, sort of when we think about the perfect ending to a movie, and I always like to use the life Christmas movies, the perfect ending, cue the snow, we're all happily, we live happily ever after, but that's not really what happened to Rosa Parks. And, and that's why I thought, you know what, let me not only, I can shed some light on who she really was, but I can shed some light on really where her greatest activism really happened. And it was literally over four decades after her historic bus stand. And so that's what I focused on. That's great. And then you um, went a step further beyond the documentary um, to write a children's book, which um, I think is so meaningful because I think the whole idea and, um, you know, as a children's book author myself, I, the whole idea of talking to children and teaching them and changing their inner dialogue and their narrative when they're young um, and expanding their mind is so important. Um, that's really 
where we make change is with, is with our children. So how did it evolve from a documentary and a research paper into a children's book for you? It actually, it happened around August of last year when the Rosa Parks Barbie doll was actually um, released as part of Barbie's women's inspiring series. And, and I had already, I had been thinking about um, how I could reach elementary school children, but I knew I couldn't reach them through the documentary because even though I was re-editing that documentary for education, it still was too long for elementary school children. And so one of the things I had done was I had taken out one scene and it was the scene with about, about, we say four generations of Parks family on the original bus at the Henry Ford Museum in Dearborn, Michigan. And so I had that one scene, it was about five minutes and I did show it to second graders. And not only were they interested, but just how they were able to interpret that bus scene after, I knew I had an audience with that video clip, but that's all I had. And, and so when I actually uh, found out about the release of the Barbie doll and realized that maybe I needed to do help, um, you know, a major manufacturer educate children, but I only had, you know, one tool. I was really lucky because I just finished coming off of my first book where I wrote a foreword to a book called Women Who Illuminate. But that book publisher, how she started was by writing children's books. And so I started talking to her and, and she was the one that actually motivated me and gave me the courage I needed to start to write this book because I knew after this release of this doll that if I wanted to continue the path that I had started on educating audiences about a different side of Rosa Parks that I needed to, to go really and think about my audience. I need to think about the children a lot better than I had when I started the documentary. And so the only way I could do that was through, you know, teaching them through their eyes and that's where the children's book really started to come into life and then started writing that children's book last, um, I think it really started writing it late October, early November. Wow, you did and, this quickly. Yes, yeah. I'm so impressed, <laughs> And I didn't Dr. realize Angela. that because I'm so used to, I mean, even though the documentary we started in 2015, we were done with that in about two years. But I'm used to getting, turning things around pretty quickly and for documentaries to do that in two years i mean I, i've heard documentaries that have taken as long as right. a decade yeah i know yeah <laughs> yes and i mean Crazy. those are the ones we see that get the academy awards but we you know find out oh it took them 10 years to get it done and so so i mean we just we started working on it and and the reason that we did it and i think one of the reasons that we were working on it is that we were trying to hit some what we called uh, dates that would make sense for the book. I mean, the first one we knew we, we would not hit February. I mean, we were just, there was no way we could have done that. Right. <laughs> I mean, not in October, but no. you got Juneteenth. So that was I, it, kind of amazing. <laughs> yeah. It, well, and the Juneteenth was something we just threw out there because the, the original date was going to be sometime in April because 
April is a Black Women's History Month. I mean, there's a lot of things. There's a lot to do there, right? Yeah, and so we figured that, but then you know, we all know what, what happens to everybody in March, and, and it, it doesn't really shut us down because we're pretty much doing all this stuff, what I say, through the cloud anyway. But it does, it does impact us because my book publisher has young children. And so now all of a sudden she now has to become a, you know, a school teacher on top of this. And, and, you know, so it just couldn't happen. Yeah. Every, everyone was in that boat. So it's kind of a miracle though, that you um, found the Juneteenth um, date to debut, but you know, you and I discussed, and I think this is true of a lot of us. Many people had not, heard of Juneteenth until this year, right? That's also something, right, that we had said is not really taught in in the schools. Can you tell us a little about that date and the meaning behind that? Well, and a lot of people think, and this is something that I think when you talk about uh, how U.S. history is taught, and in each state, we have a little bit more where, like, I'm in California, we'll have a little bit of California history in there as well. So if you're in Texas, you probably understand a lot more what Juneteenth is than a lot of other people. But a lot of people at first thought that Juneteenth meant that it was the end of slavery. And that was, you know, when the Emancipation Proclamation that was enacted. But really what it is, is that at that point, yes, the slaves, the slaves had already been free, but it took until two years after that that amendment that the people in Texas found out they were actually free slaves. So, so yes. And so that's what, I mean, this is just another part of where history is. And it's not just when I talk about black history, it's, it's all kinds of history because we have to, we abbreviate it because we're getting through a lot of things. But um, the thing about Juneteenth, and I think it just, really exploded this year is that it's always been celebrated, but not to this level because of what happened in the civil unrest that happened starting, you know, May 31st with George Floyd. And so with that opened up the door to a lot of conversation and, and a lot of people thinking, why are we right back to where we were in 1968? when we had this US civil unrest. And so so it just so happened that a lot of people, what they were looking for this time, that I think social media has really helped with, is that a lot of people are looking for knowledge this time. And they, they want to be educated. And so accurate with, knowledge, I think, is yes, the key, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. It's not saying, oh well, Juneteenth, that's just, you know, that's when the slaves are free. Well, no, that's not really true. It's they were already Free. But they found out about it. Found out in Texas. So Texas was like the last of the line. Wow. I guess. See, I had not known that. And I'm in New York. And that's, you know, something I don't recall, you know, I could have been, you know, out that day. But, I, but I, I don't think so. Because no, I've spoke to no, a lot of my no, peers. No. And, and a lot of people are saying, you know, we just never learned about that. So I'm, right. I'm so glad that it's actually coming to the forefront. And I think going forward, Juneteenth is going to be a day that is commemorated. So um, I think that's great. You know, I think this book is, this children's book, I really want to really encourage everybody um, to go out and get it. My Life with Rosie, A Bond Between Cousins. I, I think it's a beautiful little story that, that tells a big story in a, in a beautiful way. So I want to encourage everybody um, to go get that. Before we end, can you tell us a little 
tidbit about Rosa that's maybe funny or cute that maybe nobody else knows, but you do because you're in her family, something she wouldn't mind you sharing? Well, I think the thing that a lot of people don't really, they don't really know about Rosa was that she really, the importance of family, it was what really drove her to do the things that she did. And, and so when she's, as she is, you know, moving through her life and she's moving through some, you know, pretty big events in her life, she never stopped thinking about family. So one of the things that my aunt Carolyn would tell me, who is the little girl that's in the book, is that, you know, as she got older, mm-hmm. she she would always cook, my aunt Carolyn would always cook Sunday dinner. And this is, a you know, pretty big staple for a lot of African-American families, it's a Sunday dinner, but she would cook it and she would leave it, she would leave it out and then she would go to church. And so um, my aunt Carolyn went to one church and then my cousin Rosie went to another. But a lot of times what my aunt Carolyn would say is that she would come home and there would be a note from cousin Rosie telling her, thank you for the food. It was really good. (laughs) And, (laughs) And then, you know, and it, 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 you know, things like that, that just shows you really, she was just family because only family can do that to you. <laughs> right. You know, right. Your house when you're not at home. And, and eat your food, eat your dinner. Yes, yes. <laughs> That's what we love about family. So, <laughs> yes, and I mean, I can understand because Aunt Carolyn, she's the one that's known as the best cook. So I can completely understand that. But to listen to something like that, I mean, this is something that I do not take for granted because I was that little girl learning about her. Never in my wildest dreams would I ever imagine that not only would I marry into her family, but that I would be given the gift of telling the story. And so when I hear things like this, I think, oh my goodness, these, it gives me chills, even though I'm, I'm telling you this now. I mean, it gives me chills because this is a person that was just, this person wasn't ordinary. This person was extraordinary. And she's not only a hero to me, but she's a hero to a lot of other young, young people out there. And it's so nice to be able to tell a different story so that young people understand the depthness of who Rosa Parks was. And I think maybe both things are true, right? Like, you can be an ordinary person doing extraordinary things and you can be an extraordinary person from the get-go. And both of those things can actually be true at the same time because maybe you didn't start out in any special way, but we all have the extraordinary in us. And I think so when Rose is described as an ordinary woman, um, I think there's a part of that that's probably true because that's everybody. But then we all have a place and a time and a moment where we can turn into something else, something wonderful. And she certainly had done that. Um, and I know that it was a buildup, but it was also a moment in time. So I think it's, it's important to remember both of those things. Um, just because you have so much background and knowledge on this, Angela, I would just love um, if you could tell us, you know, how do we speak now? This is such a, a difficult challenging time in so many ways with the coronavirus, with the civil unrest that's been going on. How do we talk to our children about racism and human rights and, and becoming an activist and, and making change happen in a positive way? How do we, how do we engage our children? You know, I think the, 
we have to be able to engage them the way that they think. And so one of the things I wanted to do is because my son is well past this age now, so I had to pull in some moms to help me, but I wanted to have them talk to their children about, you know, how do we honor people's differences? And I think um, that was the way that I looked at it. And that's the way that I took when I wrote the book is that if we can teach our children to honor differences now, like curly hair, we can, we can teach them how to accept all types of people. And so, I mean, that's one of the things we can do. It's so simple because one of the things that I thought about is that when I was writing this book is that our children are not born to hate. They're born to love. The hate is something that's taught. So if we could get them at a very early age to learn to love people's differences and accept them and then stand up when other people are putting down other people's differences, then we can have a generation that grows up that doesn't see 1968 or 2020 again. And so that's, I think if we can just do it like that, that simplistic way of just saying, how can we honor someone who is different? They understand that because one of my good friends, she she has a five-year-old. And so when she asked him that question, she said, well, I'm going to make sure that my friend isn't bullied anymore. Well, you know, here we are in his way, he's becoming an activist because he's making sure that his friend isn't treated differently, even if it's from another person. So I think that's what we do with him because our children already have that innate ability to love. We just need to keep them that way. We need to keep them that way. I think that's so well said. And I think, um, you know, differences, as you touched on, come in all different um, shapes and sizes, right? Small and big from our hair to our skin color to everything. And what we really need to do is really embrace them. But embrace them is just, it's a nice it's a nice slogan, right? But what really has to happen is it has to come deep from within. As educators and as parents, we have to convey that to our children really from the time that they can can talk and see and see, right? Because then then differences will be fine. It'll be something great and something we can all learn from rather than something to be afraid of. So I, I'm so happy to have had you on, Angela. Um, right, Grace, this was just oh, wonderful. You're such a ray of light, Dr. Angela. I mean, you have to have her on again. Like you have such a presence yourself. So it would be so interesting to hear even more of your story as well. Uh, yes, well, that's so you. true. Thank we don't have so enough much, time Grace. in these half hours, but <laughs> I, I absolutely agree. And again, let's encourage everybody to read this book. Um, we'll put it in our show notes and also just to, you know, have the conversation with one another um, in, in a respectful way, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Beautiful. Okay. Thank you again. Bye for now.